Hi, welcome back to Escape Leaving Hell Behind. In this podcast, we talk with people who have left an overbearing religion or cult behind. We are back again today, and I'm back with my guest. Why don't you introduce us to yourself and tell us what high-demand religion or cult you left behind? Oh, it's me again, um, Andrew Pledger, and I escaped fundamentalist uh, Christianity. For some of you who watched the previous episode, uh, would know I was homeschooled my entire life. I attended Bob Jones University for my college career, and I recently got expelled from school. And I was a semester away from graduating, and I got expelled because I talked about deconstructing Christianity. And I also, in that video with Joshua Harris, I talked about religious trauma that I endured growing up. So now that I finally escaped fundamentalist Christianity, I'm on a mission to spread awareness about religious trauma and spiritual abuse. And I recently started my own IGTV show called Speaking Up. And I give people a chance to share their story. And I'm happy to do it and have those conversations. And it's similar to the how you do it with this podcast, because I get people from different kinds of religions, because I, I like those different perspectives. And it's also interesting to see, even though they're different religions, on how a lot of people can still relate to the experiences and things that they went through. And so that's what I'm doing now is, honestly, it's so interesting. I've become an influencer now, which is not something I thought that I would ever do. (laughs) But for me, it's, I do have a purpose of influencing people and inspiring them and giving them the strength to speak up. And I think the issue with religious trauma is so many people are uneducated on it, on religious trauma and just uneducated in mental health and trauma in general, that they don't know what's going wrong. And so to have someone educating them on what's actually might be happening, it can be a difference, honestly, between life and death, I feel like, because For me, I suffered so long with symptoms of religious trauma, not knowing what was going on. And when I could finally find that label or label the problem, uh, that's when I can actually start and find a solution. And I've been in therapy now for a month since leaving the school. And I'm grateful for it. And I know I'm on a path to healing and I want to help other people find that path to healing. So now you coming back on, we discussed some topics before, but we weren't able to get to everything that I wanted to ask you. So my first question is, what treatment did you notice of LGBTQ plus community when you were in your evangelical faith? Yes. So growing up in fundamentalism, there was so much generalization in the church of LGBTQ people. It was this very narrow definition of what they were. And I was very oblivious to my sexuality for a long time because I'm like, oh, I don't fit that narrow definition. So I'm good. And so as I began to truly question my sexuality and things that were going on, that's when I actually started doing my own research. I'm like, what if they're actually wrong about this? And for example, for what they would do, fundamentalists, they love the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they really take it out of context and use it to spread hate to the LGBTQ community. And like, even like old laws and like Leviticus, where no one follows the laws in Leviticus anyways, and then they pick out these few that seem to target the LGBTQ community. And what these people have done is take things out of context. And there's this incredible book. I don't know if I talked about it last time. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't, but it's called This I Know by Jim Dant. And so basically this book is, it's very simple, like pamphlet type book. It's very small. And he didn't want to go far into depth. He wanted people to be able to easily give arguments to how these verses were taken out of context in the Romans. Uh, he talks about how the context of the time was that basically prostitution was like really the issue. Prostitution was the issue in that. And 
the Bible is vague on these things. And so the issue is, number one, translations are an issue. And I know there's a person, they're coming out with a documentary called 1946. And it's about how the RSV version of the Bible, it was for the first time the word homosexual was added in the Bible. And they decided to do it. That's not really what the original meaning of the word was. And I think it's gained quite a following on Instagram on the 1946 movie. And they address the issue of how they've changed translations and words to basically fit people's bigotry and prejudice and to push that narrative. And so as I began researching more into translations, and the interesting thing is I grew up in a King James Version only church. So they didn't believe any other version of the Bible besides the King James was legitimate anyways. <laughs> so it's so funny to hear some of the times those same people use other versions. And you're like, okay, you hold to this King James only belief. So how, why are you going to these other translations anyways? And I think that's the issue is fundamentalists, they always harp on and on about context, but when it fits their agenda, they'll take things out of context and not even like bat an eye or not even think twice about it. And so Solomon and Gomorrah, that was the story. And honestly, they would just add things to the Bible, um, just generalizing um, the LGBTQ community as just perverts, going around wanting to hurt people and just fitting them into this group. And I've talked about this in some podcast of how I talked, I think with, it was my gay church days, that podcast, I talked about how maybe in the news, there's like a few people who come out and get in trouble for some sexual misconduct or something, and they happen to be LGBTQ plus. And so then they pin down everyone and they're generalizing. And so I said on that podcast, I'm like, there are so many straight white men who have done so many sexually awful things. So am I just going to be scared of all straight white males? Cause they're all like that. No, cause like correlation doesn't mean causation and it's not inherent to just your sexuality. It's a human problem we have. It's not just specific. And so just the self hatred that LGBT LGBTQ youth would be encouraged to have of themselves. And you're stuck in these families that believe these things. And I think developmentally, it's really hard growing up in that because you feel like if your parents really knew who you were, they wouldn't love you. And so you, on one hand, you have your parents telling them that they love you. But then again, they're talking nasty about the LGBTQ community. So there's this disconnect and it causes an insecure attachment. and so it's confusing to a child because okay, you say you love me, but you don't know this part of me. If you did, you really wouldn't. And so it's just this confusing thing that goes around, that goes on in the psyche. And I think for me, that did cause an insecure attachment. And I think I talked some of the last about my mental health and how bad it was because of the self-hatred that I had because of the church and growing up in a homophobic home. And I had a lot of, basically, as I've gotten older, I realized I have religious trauma. And a big part of it was developmental trauma of emotional needs and things that I needed in my form formative years that I didn't get because of hateful messages from the church and just old-fashioned ways of parenting from the Bible. Now, how was it growing up with purity culture for you? <laughs> oh wow here we go so there was so much shame and guilt about just having any sexual feelings in general and of course in purity culture they would only talk about usually heterosexual attraction and of course they would bring up homosexuals attractions here and there of course they'd be like oh you shouldn't do that blah blah you need to change or all these things but it was always just assumed that you're heterosexual in purity culture. And for it's interesting for a man, because I know from a woman's perspective, I know how hard 
it can be just from hearing people's stories about how there's so much pressure on uh, women. You feel like they're responsible for man's actions for what they wear, basically. But for men, and also for women, though, it's like women don't really have any sexual desires anyways. It's like it just doesn't exist. So that's what kind of I was, the impression I was giving the church growing up is that I was told they're like, yeah, they women do like sex. They really don't like it that much, but men like it so much more. And so it just didn't really seem as important. <laughs> they're like, oh, it doesn't matter. And they're like, this is a man's issue. But there was so much shame about having any kind of sexual feelings or sexual thoughts in general. And I remember, I can't remember what verse it was, but I remember in the Bible, they're saying, oh, if you lust after a woman or whatever, you've already committing adultery because you've already done it in your heart kind of with the whole murder thing if you hate someone you've already buried them in your heart or whatever and so there was so much pressure they're like okay god is watching your every single thought and everything you do so there's all this fear around this god that is watching everything you do and it's interesting because in fundamentalism you're taught that jesus died on the cross and that if you Praying of forgiveness, you'll be forgiven to get into heaven. But of course, you still have to ask for forgiveness every single day. But I was taught, though, you were you always had a secure way to heaven, no matter if you sin, because of that what that sinner's prayer you pray to ask Jesus into your heart, like He's in there forever. But they taught you that in order to have a relationship with Jesus, you had to pray and ask for forgiveness for your sins because that separated you from God. Going from a fundamentalist perspective, we mess up all the time from their view. We're always sinning if you look at it from that perspective. So I lived in like so much anxiety over every little thing that I did, thought, or said. I lived in such a state of just, I guess you would say, hypervigilance of always being on high alert and always worrying about, oh no, God's really pissed on me about this and this and this. Like, oh no, He's forgiven me. Am I, am I going to go to, and I'm going to go to heaven, but He's still going to be mad about things I do. And I think I dreaded taking into account how um, my relationship with my father, though, did really affect my view of God, anyways. And I think people do need to realize that any relationship you have with authority figures or even just your father, like growing up, that does affect your view of a higher power or God. And so there was so much shame around it. And they never talked about masturbation in church. But if you can't have any kind of sexual thoughts, that just kind of rolls out anything. <laughs> and so I remember in a Sunday school lesson that the lesson was about purity. And he had it was an object lesson. And the teacher so in that Sunday school lesson, he had two containers of different colors of sand, and then he had a different container. They were talking about abstinence, uh, saving sex for marriage. And so in the lesson, he said, if you have marriage, no, 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 sorry. If you have sex before marriage, this is what happens when you have sex with someone. And he poured these two colored sands together and they all mixed and he's like all right separate these sands now into their back into the jar and their rightful colors you can't have any of it mixed he's like you can't do it this is what happens when you have sex you're forever connected to this person the rest of your life <laughs> you are one you were made one with this person when you have sex so there is so much fear around it he's like it's like life or death you will be messed up the rest of your life and sexual repression is never healthy for anyone because what is repressed it's never going to go away there's a healthy way to express your sexuality and there are healthy ways to have sex with different people and if people if there are people who want to save sex for marriage, that's their choice, and that's fine. But you can't just repress your sexual desires, and it will end up building this psychic energy 
and honestly energy in your nervous system body where you finally have to release it. And it's just, there's so much shame around it. People have so much anxiety. And I've heard stories of people, they save sex until marriage, but because they were always taught such a negative view of sex, even when they were married and even according to their religion, they were doing the right thing. They couldn't have sex inside of marriage because they were conditioned basically to see sex as dirty and shameful. So when they were, when they, when they were married, they're like, Oh, I don't want to do this. This seems wrong. And it's because they were conditioned and programmed by a system of control that this was wrong. And even though that system of control told them, Oh, just wait till marriage, the psyche, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Like, you can't just tell someone their entire life, this is wrong, 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 bang. Oh, okay, now it's suddenly good. Just flip off that switch when you get married and you're good. Like, it's not bad anymore. It's just that's not how it works. When we hear messages over and over again, I think in psychology it's called a conditioned reflex. We have an automatic response to those things. And so for me, there was just so much shame and anxiety. And I was very sexually um, repressed in my teen years. And I never got the sex talk. My parents just left it to the church, which is a really bad idea. <laughs> and it wasn't helpful at all. It was just like, don't do it. And they would just scare us to death from not doing it. And I think there was so much, it took me so long to get over that shame of just being, just having sexual feelings or sexual thoughts and just being like, okay, this is a human. This is a biological thing. It's not biologically possible to not have sexual desires. And like for men, they would have to like <laughs> basically cut off their testicles if they wanted that to not have desires. Like it's so extreme. And some people actually have done that. Not often, but like it's happened in the past with these people. They feel so ashamed of their sexuality because they'll go as far to um, destroy their sexual functions of their body. And so I lived in constant guilt and shame just for being human. And I look back and I had to give myself compassion because like, I look back and I cringe and I'm like, I cannot believe that I believe those things and I let them get to me. But it was all I knew at the time. And there is a high to religion. A righteous high when you feel like, okay, if I feel this rule and don't do this, God will be pleased with me. It feels good if you follow the rule and you believe that there's a God looking out for you or is happy with you. But the downside to that is when you don't meet the standards, you go down into like sadness and despair and shame and guilt. So it's this roller coaster of highs and lows of like, all right, I'm following the rules now. Oh, I failed this day. And I, even in church, I remember being told lies. We're all complete failures. We fail God every single day, but yet he still loves us. And we're all so terrible and awful and just all these things that I internalized. And I guess I just felt so much shame for just being human. And it was like they expected us to not be human anymore. When we accepted Christ into our lives and I used to believe that the Holy Spirit indwelled me and that it would control my life and help me to fight these things. But as I got older and I saw that there were pastors were being charged with like sexual abuse charges, I'm like, these men clearly didn't hold, have a hold on their sexual desires. And I realized I'm like, that's so stupid to think that there's some spirit that will control your sexual desires when it's a biological function and like i was talking about earlier with a conditioned reflex i realized that my interpretations of my feelings at the time was the holy spirit but what i realized those tuggings that i would get about certain things in my conscious i realized it was conditioned reflex that they programmed into me so when you tell something someone something over and over again with a certain emotion around it you'll have that same emotional response to that thing in the future and so that you give, if you're given a very negative view of sex constantly, and then for some people they get married and they, it's so hard for them to have sex that that's been ingrained in them, even though according to their religion, that that's completely right. 
they still feel like it's wrong because they've been conditioned. So that's not like legitimate. That's not a Holy Spirit. It's they've been conditioned. They've been under a mind control. What are your thoughts that men can't control themselves? And then it is women's responsibility to make sure men don't lust. And when I say men and women, I'm using air quotes to denote the definitions that religious organizations ascribe to men and women. I think the fact they put so much responsibility on women to keep men from being sexually out of control just goes to show you an example of how they don't really believe the Holy Spirit can control men's lust. Because if he could, we wouldn't have these issues. If he would, like like I said, it's a biological thing. You can't help it. And like the, the reality is, is sadly, these Christian men, they're so ashamed of masturbating that they have all these sexual feelings that they can't do it. It causes too much psychological discomfort. And then you have these Christian men who end up sexually assaulting a woman. And I recently had a talk with a friend, and she is all for self-pleasure. I want to save myself for marriage, and masturbation is the only thing that has helped me save that because I have these sexual desires, and I need to release them. But I don't want to do it with another person right now, and so I can do that on my own. And she's like, it's a, it's a healthy human thing, and science has shown that it is good for our mental health just for the endorphins and like happy chemicals that go on in our brains during that and the relaxation in our bodies and the stress relief and so i think it is wrong that they put so much pressure on women and it's interesting because they believe in free will that people make their own decisions I'm sure it can cause a lot of some cognitive dissonance to be like, okay, people have a free will and they can make their own decisions, but women put cover yourselves up because men can't control themselves. So it's men can't really have a free will. It seems like regarding sexual desires. And so there's this contradictory kind of messages, not explicitly said, but implicitly implied through their expectations of women. And I think, The issue is with purity culture too, is like they sexualize women from such a young age just by saying, oh, cover up, cover up and all this stuff. And even before they're teenagers, like they don't have sexual feelings, they don't understand. And I think it's really sad how a lot of women in the church from some, in some extreme churches, Women are just seen as sexual objects. Uh, They're just supposed to please their Christian husbands to keep them from lusting after other women. And they're just supposed to be there to please their every thought and desire. And women aren't even considered a lot of the times in their sexual pleasure and what they want. And so there's these men who are just taking advantage of women in these marriages and the women are just sexually frustrated and not satisfied but they can't really say much because they have to submit to their husband and so they're completely dependent on him and it's this tough situation and i think that i would say my issue too is like they focus so much on the outward appearances and the list of do's and don'ts. And it's like, you know what? Yes, you can read your Bible every day. You can pray. You can go to church. Do follow these rules. But if your heart isn't in it or if you don't really care about it, it doesn't really matter. With the Pharisees of how they were all about their rules and regulations. But in the the Bible, it says on the outside, they were clean. But inside, they were dirty of wickedness and greediness. And so if they actually encourage them, I guess, more to look inside of themselves, which is an issue I see with in Christianity and in fundamentalism. And I recently just found this term and it's been so helpful for me and it's called spiritual bypassing and spiritual bypassing is when someone uses spirituality to cover up or ignore the root issue or cover up real issues. 
So for example, let's say like I've experienced this. So I'm having mental health struggles and let's just say this is actually true. Okay. So it's because of developmental trauma and religious trauma that I'm struggling with mental health. But I don't know that at the time though, because I'm not educated and I haven't learned to trust myself. So I'm told growing up that, oh, it's because you're not reading your Bible and you're praying enough. That's spiritual bypassing. That's trying to cover up, not deal with the core issue, but just going to a quick fix or something. And even, for example, when someone dies or whatever in the family, they oh, like they're in a better place or, or oh, this is God's plan. Don't be sad. When we put these extreme value on these very tragic, sad situations, we never get a chance to truly emotionally regulate and process these things. So what's really happening is we're using spirituality to cover up issues and we're pushing them down. And so instead of teaching men self-control and how to healthily deal with their sexuality, they're just saying, oh, like, just don't do it. Like that that just doesn't work though. And then they tell women to just, oh, cover yourself up completely and all this stuff. And it doesn't help anyone on either sides where men literally can have any kind of sexual thoughts whatsoever. And then women over here have to completely cover up. But that's not gonna stop a man's libido. That's really not. And so I feel again with the spiritual bypassing how Women can be blamed for being sexually assaulted. They'll be like, oh, what were you wearing? What were you saying? What were you doing? They're bypassing or covering up the issue. It's really with the man of what he did. He did the wrong thing. And they're not, when that happens, so that man, he's not going to deal with his issues that kept him from controlling himself. He's just, he's protected by the church. And I think the issue is, we have all these men in leadership at churches and they know what it's like to have extremely strong sex drives and fight that drive, that natural human drive inside of them and the frustration. And I think that's why it's encouraged so much because they know how prone they are to that. And, and I think any these men who are sexually repressed, if they have any kind of sexual thought about a woman even if this woman is not being sexual in any way, they blame the woman because they don't want to deal with themselves. They have so much discomfort with it. It makes them so uncomfortable. They blame the people doing it. And for example, recently, I know the Super Bowl halftime show, Charlie Kirk, the conservative um, talk show host or whatever, he was very offended by the halftime show and said how sexual it was and all these things. And really what he was doing was projecting on the show or on those people was that, as that he was having sexual feelings or sexual thoughts that caused that drive in him and it bothered him and it's you know what no one made him watch the halftime show I and mean, if these men really are so bothered by women who are confident in their bodies and showing them off which bodies are not sinful bodies are not wrong bodies are beautiful wonderful things and we should never be ashamed of them. And so it's, but if you don't like that and you go into a situation knowing that's what you're going to see, then that's on you. Like that's not on them. And so I feel like there needs to be more accountability with men. What are your thoughts that purity culture plays a role in women wanting to be skinny, using air quotes around the word skinny, and or developing? eating disorders? Yes, that is an interesting question. And that's something I've never really considered because I'm not a woman. So I've never really thought of that. So it's interesting to think from their perspective on this and thinking about it and looking back on what pastors and Sunday school teachers would tell these girls and women. They would basically tell these women that they needed to be pretty and nearly like sometimes almost seemed like they had to be perfect for their husbands and i remember there were some sometimes there was like missionaries who would visit our church and there would be a couple and it's sad that our pastors would do this but sometimes they would make a joke about how oh like oh how did you get that wife she's so good looking like she's way out of your league and they would talk about how 
God blessed them with a beautiful wife, had a wonderful body or whatever. And what that communicates to women in the church is, oh my gosh, I will not be lovable if I'm not skinny and if I'm not beautiful. A man will not want me. And I hate the double standards in it because it's like men aren't really expected <laughs> to like <laughs> better themselves. And honestly, I don't think either side should be so pressured. Like, oh, you have to be like this to be acceptable. You have to look this or this way or this way. And I think there can be even around eating. There is shame around it in the church. and. I'm trying to remember, like, one of the deadly sins or whatever, I think it's gluttony and especially just excessive overeating. And as I've gotten older, I see my issue with Christianity is it really has these shallow answers for things. If someone came up to me and let's just say I was being a glutton and I just went to all these buffets and ate all the time and got fat. And someone just said to me, oh, you're an awful, disgusting sinner. That's not really getting at the core issue. That doesn't help anyone on either side. It just makes that person feel self-righteous or feel good about themselves. And so let's just say I did have an issue with overeating and getting weight, praying and asking for forgiveness for sins. That just causes shame. And shame has never been a productive emotion or feeling to help anyone be better. Except shame has helped people to conform, though, to authority figures and people in control. But it hasn't really helped you change as an individual. And so when you're ashamed about something, that is, no one should live in chronic shame. And that's an issue with religious trauma and just people who grow in these environments. You live with chronic shame. And so in order to deal with that shame, we act out in different ways. And sadly, I feel like, so number one, Overeating is very looked down upon, and there's so much shame around it. And I'm an emotional eater. I've gotten better about it, but being feeling shameful about overeating has never helped me stop. Getting at the core emotional issue has helped me control my eating. Not just feeling bad about it. Like, oh, I'm a disgusting sinner. Oh, God hates me now. Oh my gosh, I feel so bad. But no, it's just actually, I wasn't spiritually bypassing it. I was actually digging deeper at the root issue. And I think there is so much blame in the church of things that happen to you and things that you do. And I've learned, as I've learned about trauma and about how even like children can experience trauma in the womb, which I learned about today, like a fetus can sense the mother's feelings in environments because of the hormones going around. And it's like a transference of her emotions to the baby. And like women have intuitively known for thousands of years that their children were effect, affected by what they did in the womb, but it, it wasn't scientifically proven until I don't know when in the last hundred or so years, but knowing that, okay, maybe my behaviors, this isn't really my fault. This is something from a trauma from it being in the womb that I don't remember, or even a trauma after I was born. And I need to work through this. So I feel like what causes a lot of emotional issues in women and girls is the pressure to be the perfect, beautiful wife, the shame of just overeating or eating in general. And just there's so much shame. And so you have all those things together. And for some people, like, Eating disorders aren't an issue because we're all different. We all have different reactions. There are some people where, let's just say they're in a family where their parent, and I hear this a lot, a parent is just very harsh about what they put in their body or what they eat. And because they get so self-conscious of their weight because of their parents, it, I've seen many people who have developed an eating disorder because of their, what their parents said to them. And our parents have such an effect on this. And I think also... It's possible that these women in the purity culture, when they're growing up these families, their fathers could possibly be very harsh to them about what they look like, what they eat, what they wear. They could put a lot of pressure on them and be like, oh, do you want to get married? Oh, you shouldn't eat that. Or There's this pressure. And in the fundamentalist environment, 
in the extreme ones, women, like, they're not expected to get careers. They're expected to get married to a good Christian man, have sex with him and have children and stay at home and cook and clean and do all these things. And it's really sad. The girls that are born to this environment, like, that's their only role in these environments. So if they do not meet these standards, they feel like they're nothing because they're also not encouraged to get an education because they want to keep these women weak and submissive to these systems of control. And I think it's very unfortunate. And I hope a lot of these women can escape these environments. And now my next question is, how has it been since you've left with your mental health? Has that improved at all? What does that look like for you now? Yes, my mental health has improved so much. And I think what was so crucial for me was when I was at Bob Jones University, and it was like the day after I found out I was expelled, I was like, it was my last lunch eating at the university. And all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, I felt all these sad emotions and all this emotional energy in my body. And I just started breaking down crying. And I cried for 10 minutes, like bawling my eyes out. Like I have not cried so passionate, passionately like that in years. And after it happened, and I've been trying to be really good about emotional regulation and just understanding my emotions. So like I journal every day. And so after it happened, I journaled about like how I felt in the moment, reactions to my body. And I was like, why did this happen? And what I didn't realize, I didn't realize to the full extent, obviously I knew the fundamentalist environment was very bad for my mental health, but I didn't know to the full extent of how much, what, how much of a weight it really was. Because when that's your baseline of normality, <laughs> that's all you know anything different. You're like, okay, this is normal. But of course, when you have mental health issues, you're like, okay, this is because of this environment. But when finally that you are free from that toxic environment, I truly fully realize how the mind, the brain and the body are connected because all that crying was me releasing this energy that had been trapped in my body, the psychic energy, this nervous energy from trauma and just from living in a, just living in a state of hypervigilance, constantly having anxiety, being afraid about things, worrying about what I say or do, worrying what people might think of me, if they think I'm a good enough Christian or not, or this or that. Number one, I would live in a state of hypervigilance. Number two, because of my sexuality, I had to hide that fear of what would happen if people found out. And it's just, there's so much pressure to conform. And you really, it's really hard in that environment. You can't really talk about your emotions without there being some kind of shame around it. Like without someone being like, oh, just trust God. Like you're not trusting enough. You're not doing this. And so when I cried my eyes out and it really happened because I realized that I was free from fundamentalist Christianity and that I would never have to go into that environment again. I had just basically cut the cord with it, like cut myself off from it. And it was just this weight was lifted, you know, how I could at least best explain it was like, I mentally is there was a clamp. Someone had put my head for so long, there was pressing. I had so much tension there. And then when I could just breathe and just be out of that environment And now I'm like, it's so great. Like I can be human. I can feel, I can have emotions and that's okay. I can actually trust myself. And what I've learned in the past month of therapy is how trauma is so awful because when you are traumatized, you are disconnected from yourself, which causes you to disconnect from others. And so that's the hard thing is as human beings, we are wired for socializing, having connection. So when we can't connect to ourselves and we can't connect to others, number one, we can't figure out our problems. We can't emotionally regulate because we're disconnected from ourselves. And in in these environments, we're taught that we're evil and that we can't trust ourselves. That The devil plants these thoughts in our minds. So how can we know what is right or wrong? 
there's so much doubt about ourselves and there's, there's so much ultra dependency on this religion. And so we're disconnected from ourselves. And then trauma causes us to be disconnected from others. As I was talking to my therapist, I was like, I was surrounded by a lot of people growing up, but I didn't feel close to them, but it didn't make sense to me. He's like, as human beings, we need to give and receive love. When you give love and you don't get it back, you will psychologically and emotionally deplete it will hurt you psychologically. And he was, and I told him, I was like, yeah, I'm like, I don't think, I didn't feel like I got what I needed in love growing up. Like I gave it, but I didn't get it back. I didn't feel it, even though it's around people. And I didn't have that connectedness and it took a toll on my mental health. And so my mental health is better because number one, I'm in a healthy environment. Number two, I'm, I've, I don't go to church anymore. I've escaped Christianity. And I'm going to therapy and it's just, I grew up in an emotionally dysfunctional family where I was, we didn't talk about emotions. We weren't allowed to express anger. We weren't really allowed to have our own opinions because my parents were always right with a fundamentalist perspective. So now um, living with a new family with my guardians, it's been incredible because I've been able to talk about my emotions. I've been able to talk about my opinions on different things. I don't have to worry or work on eggshells or have anxiety about everything I do. I don't have to worry about if I'm reading the Bible enough or praying enough or doing enough because I don't do those things anymore because I don't care because my life is better without them. And for me, spirituality was still something so important to me, but I was touched a narrow view of it. And really, no, for me, spiritual healing and what really is religion is supposed to do is supposed to make us whole, bring our pieces back together. And so for me in therapy, that's really what I'm doing is I'm making myself whole. All these pieces of me that have been shattered and de destroyed, I am bringing back together. And I still, I read philosophy and psychology and different things. And it is nurturing to my soul and my spirit. I don't have to, I don't have to read a religious book to be nurtured for my soul. And I'm still working on improving myself every day through reflection. And the hardest thing for me is because we were ingrained in this environment to constantly be doing these lists of things, or if you don't follow these things, you're bad. You have to constantly hit the mark. And when you hit the mark, when you miss the mark, you feel so much shame and guilt. And in therapy, my therapist gave me a list of things I think they were like adjectives or something, but he's like, pick one, pick two that you're good at, pick one that you struggle with. And the one I struggled with was non-striving, which meant I always felt like I had to accomplish something. I put so much pressure on myself to meet this standard. And so for right now, my healing, I've been learning to not put so much pressure on myself to accomplish things, but just to be, and just to be present and to be okay and basically accept anything that's going on in my life and thinking, working through it. I don't have to put pressure on myself to meet all these goals. And I still do have goals. Like I'm still working on my book. So I, I write for about 30 minutes every day. I meditate every day. I read two books a week, but my self-worth and my happiness is not based on meeting those, those goals. So not like if I miss a, let's just say one day I miss writing. Oh, boo-hoo that happened i was continue the next day i can't just be stuck in the past and it's just been at the core of it i can finally be human now so now how has it been for you where you've been able to embrace being part of the lgbtq plus community yeah that's something that it really took me a long time to be able to do and i would say it took me probably four years to do it. And so for me, if I admitted it, I've really been deconstructing for four years, but I've been consciously deconstructing for one. And there's so much, there's such a negative connotation. And deconstruction is really just breaking apart a belief system and examining it uh, in its context and what it was meant. And just from different perspectives and understanding people who wrote it 
and just really deciding, oh, is this something that I really believe or is this very, is this actually helpful? Is this going to make my life better? And so for me, four years ago, I tried to get rid of the toxic parts of Christianity. Like I knew I had experienced spiritual abuse. And so I'm like, okay, I want to take these, this extreme shame and self-hatred and guilt out. And when I try to get rid of those negative things and take the loving and wonderful parts of Christianity, my religious trauma was a parasite that was attached to Christianity as a whole and it distorted all of it. And what I realized a year ago almost was in order to truly heal, I had to completely cut that off, get rid of it. And I realized it wasn't worth it to kill myself just to submit to these beliefs that I really figured out that I really didn't care about. It was just because my parents ingrained them in me and I conformed to their beliefs because I felt like that was the only way I could get love and acceptance. So for me, learning to love myself and being a part of the LGBTQ community was just getting rid of that internalized homophobia by just reprogramming my mind and truly understanding and getting to know people who are LGBTQ and reading books on the LGBTQ community, just on what it's like, or the experience, and even from a scientific perspective too. Even it's just, I found out that homosexuality, it's seen in nature, a, a lot of species, that behavior. And for me, it was getting rid of the hateful definition that was put in my mind. And even though when I finally knew that what they said wasn't true, but like I said earlier, that condition reflexed of all those years of hateful messages just caused so much internalized homophobia in myself and so much self-hatred. So just meditation and like affirmations is really what helped me learn to just love and accept myself. And then once I loved and accept myself, and I think for me, I realized that it wasn't my entire identity. Like I'm not just gay. I'm also a reader. I'm a writer. I'm an artist. I do other things. I didn't have to feel like I had to put my whole identity in this. And that's what I also got the impression for Christianity is that that the LGBTQ community puts their entire identity in this one thing. And it's not true. As I see other people, they're like, I'm other things. Like, you know, I'm a human being. And so I do truly hope there's a day where people won't have to come out of the closet, where people can just date, get married, or get engaged, whoever, and it's just not a big deal that people can just love who they desire to love and just who they connect with. And it was extremely difficult growing up in it, but as I've gotten older and read some research on my own, I realized the hatred for LGBTQ people was part of it was projection. And I think part of it was these people, they had maybe these desires and they, when they saw it in other people, it caused that hatred and they really had on themselves. They projected it onto other people. And number two, I just prejudice and bigotry in the church. And like I said earlier, the verses that they used to justify that. And some of these people grew up being taught to hate the LGBTQ community. So we have these negative messages passed down. So reprogramming through affirmations and meditation and researching on the actual definition and the experiences of the LGBTQ community, that's what helped me accept uh, myself and being a part of the community. So that is great that you've been able to really embrace being part of the LGBTQ plus community. And now what are three tips you have for people looking to leave a high demand religion or cult? So I would say looking back on my life is learning that it's okay to question because people are imperfect and beliefs are not absolute truth. And I know that's can seem heretical to some people, but there are some beliefs that are just personal. And there are some beliefs that are just, they twist interpretation of scripture just because of our own different perspective and our own biases that twist that. So first learn to question things. And what I've learned is, it's interesting because I still follow Christ's teachings, but I don't consider myself a Christian. I just don't like that label. And I try not to judge. I try to be loving to everyone. I try to help the needy and help the less fortunate. 
And I feel like that shouldn't have, we shouldn't have to do those things to mirror Jesus. We should just do those things because we're decent human beings. Anyways, I shouldn't have to be motivated by heaven or hell or whatever to do those things. But number one, questioning things is a first. And that can be really scary. And also, and this is how they control you too. The other thing I think that helped me is exploring outside the fold. I was so unhappy inside of the church. I really had no community. I did not belong. I did not feel love and acceptance. And I was like, there's got to be a place better than this. And so they tried to discourage you from exploring outside the fold, though, by saying you can't intermingle with the world. Or That's really how they control you, though, is they isolate you. Because once you hear different perspectives and different ideas, it's harder for that system to control you because you're veering away from that narrow-minded thinking. And yes, I would say explore the fold, get to know different kinds of people and just have conversations with different people about their beliefs, about religion and different things and even political views. So question, explore outside the fold and educate yourself, research. And there's an incredible book that helped me leave and it's called Leaving the Fold. It's by Marlene Winnell. And I think it's a very popular book for people who deconstruct. She's a psychologist who coined the term religious trauma. And she goes through the ways that these religions manipulate you and brainwash you and how you can heal from that harm and escape those environments. So questioning, exploring outside the fold, educating yourself, and just being open to different experiences. And I would say learning to connect with yourself, to trust yourself. Because that, that's what was difficult for me as I was taught to not trust myself. So when you can't trust yourself, you really can't think for yourself and you really can't question or do these things. So at the core, at the very beginning, you have to learn to trust yourself and connect and know yourself. Don't let people tell you who you are. Explore. Don't be afraid of the different parts of who you are. And I know, and you know it's a journey for everyone. And I just, I think people should know that there are, there is a community out there somewhere for you where people would love you for who you are and you are not meant to live your life in fear. We are all meant, I think everyone deserves to have a happy life and to live their best life and be their true authentic selves. So those are great tips. And now is there anything else you would like to add before we go today? I think I'll probably think of something later, but now, I guess all that I would say is for anyone who wants to keep on following me with my journey. And I'm also working on a book about my experiences um, in the church and the psychological impact to follow me. You can follow me on Instagram. My username is Andrew Pledger. The A is with the four and something I'm working on. And I'm super excited to share with the world because I don't think anyone's taken this approach to a book on religious trauma because most people just do a memoir, but my book is split into a, a memoir. That's half of the book. And the rest of the half is a psychoanalysis where I really dig deep into how I was brought up affecting me. And I will also have like my therapy sessions and things in there. So I would be very grateful if anyone listening would follow my journey with me on my Instagram page. Well, thank you for coming on and have a great night. All right. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for joining us today. As always, I want to give special thanks to our sponsor and friend, Corporate Design Solutions, who has generously made it possible for this podcast to be a reality. If anyone is looking for help protecting their digital info, please email Michael at helpdesk at corpdesignsolutions.com.